Great, well thank you very much for being here. Um, I am from the engineering department, but given the topic of what I'm going to talk about, you might have questions about what sort of engineering I'm doing. Um, I'm part of the bioengineering group, so this is a new effort that we started about 10 years ago when I first came here. And so we're trying to look at solving problems in engineering using approaches from biology, and that's what I'm going to be talking about tonight. So I am speaking about biomimetic materials, and I will explain what that means in a little bit. Um, but mostly I want to have a serious rethink about the way that we build stuff in the 21st century. So if you think about our carbon footprint, you would probably quite sensibly and quite correctly assume that a huge contributor to our carbon footprint is power plants. And you would be correct, coal-fired power plants would be the really, really terrible culprit. Um, but given the fact that since I've been speaking for a few seconds, you can probably tell that I'm not actually from here, um, you might also suspect that this was a big problem in contributing to our carbon footprint. I do, in fact, happen to take these evil machines back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean with quite regular frequency, and I do occasionally go to visit family in Australia as well. So, okay, I'm part of the very, very guilty thinking about my carbon footprint and all of the terrible things that I'm doing because of all of my transatlantic and uh, long haul travel. Now, what you may not realize is that that amount of the total carbon footprint that is the entire aviation sector, including short haul and long haul, is dwarfed by building materials. The first time I heard this, I was completely stunned. I was at a materials conference, and they had the German environment minister giving a special interest seminar over the lunchtime where they had free pizza, as one has if you want to lure people in to listen to the German environment minister speak. And uh, he put up some charts that I'm going to show here that, um, quite honestly, threw me for a bit of a loop. I had been working in materials for a long time at this point. I had been working on this subject of biomimetic materials, but I had never put two and two together that there was potential for that to be a solution to this particular problem. I wouldn't have told you that I was working in energy research or that I was working in sustainability, but in fact, if you look at the contribution to our total carbon footprint from concrete and steel, it's actually quite dramatic. And of course, if you look at the skyline of London, which was on my title slide, we're using a lot of this stuff and we keep using more and more. And that's just us. If you look at some other places in the world, China's one very good example, there's quite a lot of construction going on. And so that chunk of the total picture that can be attributed to concrete and steel is actually pretty significant. And the reason for this is very simple. If you want to make these materials in order to use them to build buildings, to build bridges, whatever it is you would like to build, you have to do high temperature processing of these materials. So to make steel, of course, you have to heat it up to high temperatures. And to make concrete, you have to heat the cement components up to high temperatures. And we're talking about thousands. So there's where your energy is going. It's in heating these materials up in the course of the processing so that you can then go ahead and build things out of them. 
So here is a 2007 total carbon emissions chart, which I found from the International Energy Agency's 2009 World Energy Outlook. This I found freely available on the internet. The newer ones, they have embargoed and you have to pay money for them. But I think it's probably safe to assume that 10 years old data here is not going to be a significant problem. So the blue piece of the pie here in total emissions from the year 2007, the blue piece power generation, as I said, probably not that surprising that coal-fired power plants and things are contributing dramatically. The next largest section is the purple one there, which is for transport. And as I said, of that bunch of transport, a surprisingly thin slice of it is actually for the entire aviation industry. Road transport is a much bigger chunk. The green one is the third largest slice of that total pie, and that is for industry. But when you look at what industry is, Industry is about 50% concrete and steel, and 50% all other industry. So hopefully that convinces you that we're talking about a very large piece of this puzzle here. Iron and steel about just over, or just under twice as big as the mineral or cement part of it. So 52% other industry, 50, 48% iron and steel. So there's my numbers to say, well, we have a little bit of a problem here. Now you might say, well, that is a problem, but perhaps we already have a solution. We have ways of building things out of wood. And that's true. And here we have a plot of the energy consumed per volume of material, so per cubic meter of material. And we have a very nice small piece there for wood on the left. And if you notice, that is a log scale on the left. So we are going up in orders of magnitude as we go to concrete and as we go to steel. Now, this is something that has been reflected in trends in the last 10 years because there's actually been a resurgence in building things out of wood. There are, in fact, a lot of programs on trying to develop fast-growing woods and composites made from fast-growing woods. There are crazy ideas being thrown around about building timber skyscrapers. And if you're interested in such things, there's a fantastic structural architect here in the university, Michael Ramage, in the, or in the uh, architecture department, who's very much involved with this. So you can see why that would be sustainable compared with concrete and steel, because you're talking about, on a per-volume basis, literally orders of magnitude less energy in order to produce the materials for building. Now, of course, there's a small caveat there, which is that wood is lightweight, and as a result, its properties are not comparable to something like steel. They might be comparable on a per weight basis, but you still have to rethink the way that you design and build things if you're going to make them out of trees instead of making them out of our especially high-strength steels that we've had since the 1970s, or our favorite concrete steel composites. Now, of course, the idea of building things out of natural materials is not completely new. As I said, wood building has seen a resurgence in the last decade or so, but it's also been something that's been around pretty much since the beginning of human construction. Um, and you can also do clever things. This is a picture from um, some of Gaudi's work in Barcelona, some pretty cool 
sculpture-y things made out of rocks. So the idea of using natural materials to build things isn't new. And of course, Gaudi's also extremely famous for his natural forms in buildings. So in having these very organic shapes and for thinking about how these things blend in with the sort of contours of what the earth actually looks like. Um, Sagrada Familia, of course, um, that was five years ago, so it's probably slightly improved in terms of its construction. But this idea of natural forms in building, which Gaudi's quite famous for, does have a word, and that is the word biomimetic. And this is a quite literal translation. So we have bios meaning life, and mimesis meaning basically copying. So we've got our DNA molecules here, we're putting them in the photocopier, and we're going to make literal copies of things. Or perhaps we can be more clever than that, and we can look at how nature does things, and we can be more inspired by it to try and do things in a nature-like way without making a literal copy. Now, this is an idea that pretty much came about in the 1970s. So here we have a graph. This is from the Google Ngram viewer. If you're not familiar with this, they have this entire set of digitized books. And you can put any word or set of words in it and see how frequently they appear. So at the moment, my fellow countrymen back in the US use this a lot to track crazy things that Donald Trump says, because you don't have to do it over the course of 100 years. You can do it over the course of the last couple weeks. So when he says something stupid, then there's a huge spike. And then it goes away, because then he's going to say something else stupid. But it can be useful in technical research as well. And so here we've got about 100 years. And we've got the start of this idea of biomimetic in the 1970s. And I also included the word bio-inspired in two different forms, because some people who work in this field like that term better, because they don't like this idea of directly trying to copy nature, and they prefer this idea more of being inspired by the way nature does things. But what you can see is the idea kind of came up in the early 1970s. It burbled along a little bit. and then. About 1995, you see this massive change in derivative, plus these additional two terms showing up. So what happened in 1995? Well, that's actually when we started to have this revolution in nanotechnology and nanofabrication. So you can look at nature, and you can notice that nature produces things that have nanoscale features. And that happens because they're being produced by biological cells. And biological cells tend to be on the order of about 1 to 10 micrometers in diameter. So things that are in the 10 to the minus 6 region in meter space make things that are smaller than them, as you would expect. And so most of the things that we're talking about in nature have features that are on this characteristic, say, 10 to 100 nanometer scale. And so nanofabrication techniques coming along enabled people to really have a spike in this interest in biomimetics. And in fact, it's still going up. This graph actually stops at 2008, because that's all of the uh, searchable books on the Google Ngram viewer. But I can tell you from the conferences I attend and the colleagues that I know that this is continuing to go up. 
And in fact, you see things in the popular press about this subject quite often. How many people here happened to see a couple of weeks ago when there was a lot of discussion about whether Spider-Man was actually logistically practical? So this is more kind of nanoscale to microscale features, trying to make little spider suits that look like geckos, feet climbing up walls and things. It's another good example of this very, very broad and very vast field of biomimetics in which tonight I'm really just focusing on the materials themselves and the materials themselves for the reasons of this sustainability issue. So my argument that I'm making tonight is that sustainability is exactly why engineers should be taking inspiration from nature to solve some of our biggest problems. And that if we do that, if we have a massive rethink of the way we do things, and we stop just throwing energy at problems the way that we do when we build with concrete and steel, then maybe we could actually do something about the massive problems we're facing as a society and as a planet uh, because of our global carbon footprint and because of the fact that we don't seem to be able to do anything to really slow that down. We still want to build buildings and bridges and therefore we still go about doing them in the way that we technologically know how to do, but that technology has this huge massive carbon impact. Okay, so we're going to say that this is the approach we want to use. We want to use biomimetics, and therefore, we have a two-stage process, the way I think about it. So I take a natural material, and here I have a piece of the femur bone, so the bone that goes from your hip to your knee. It is the longest of the bones in your body, and it's a great example of an interesting material. So. We want to imitate this because it turns out that it has pretty good properties, especially on a per weight basis because, of course, we have to be able to walk around and so we wouldn't want something as heavy as high-strength steel forming our skeleton. So we have to study the bone because we have to understand not just what it's made of, but how it's made, so how those components are put together. You can just measure the proportion of them and that doesn't actually tell you enough to recreate. So if we want to mimic, we need to study, we need to figure out what those components are, we need to be able to then come up with a way to synthesize, and that way of synthesizing the material may involve some sort of imitation of the synthesis technique that was used in nature, so some sort of copying of the natural process by which the material formed in the first place. So first, let's talk a little bit about natural materials and what they're made of and what makes them so different from concrete and steel that I can argue that we could make materials like this to rethink our building problem. Here is our percent relative abundance of different elements in living organisms in red and the Earth's crust in blue. We are pretty much made of hydrogen, carbon, and oxygen. We have some other components. Calcium will come up in a few minutes. Um, but for the most part, we are organic and we are made up of small elements. Now, the Earth's crust, of course, is from where we get all of these wonderful metals that we dig up and process at high temperatures in order to build things. And so the abundance of things in the Earth's crust is very different than the abundance of things in our own selves. 
Now here's a picture of a bacterium. So we have an individual cell here. And of course, in contrast to most engineering materials, we have 70% water. So that poses some interesting questions. Um, and of that other 30%, which is just roughly called chemicals on the left, we can break that down into different sorts of molecules. We have, at the very bottom, we have things that are sugars. We have this massive contribution from proteins. We have RNA and DNA, which are essentially the information storage mechanisms uh, of the cell. And then we have phospholipids making up the cell membranes and ions and small molecules. So we know this fairly well. We know what biology is made of, right? Except biology isn't just made up of cells. If it was, I would not be able to stand here. So there's an important distinction when you're thinking about natural materials between the part that's alive, which is the biological part, and what the rest of it is. So we need to explore that a little bit more. So when I first started thinking about this, I thought of classic sort of Linnaean taxonomy, which you would have come across if you were a biology student. There's your sort of levels of characterization of things, phylum, genome, species, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I tried to rethink this in terms of natural materials taxonomy and put together a new system of looking at things for materials instead of for biology. So I'm focusing here on the higher order organisms. So I don't want to think about the single cells because I want to think about materials. And so therefore, I'm focusing on animals and on plants. And so that's our kingdom. The next level of hierarchy is actually tissue. So it turns out that if you look at animals, there are four main types of tissue, epithelium, muscle, connective tissue, and nervous tissue. And if you look at plants, there are three, epidermis, ground tissue, vascular tissue. So if you think of something like an organ, an organ is gonna be made up of some layers of tissue, and therefore, we don't have an organ level of characterization here because, again, we're focusing on the materials. Okay, that's fine. So what is a tissue? Well, a tissue is something that is made up of two things. It is made up of cells, so we have the biological part, and then we have this other component, the ECM, or the extracellular matrix. Now, this is where I always get into trouble when I start talking about my research to biologists. Because to a biologist, and I apologize if there are any in the room, they look at this chart and they say, this is really interesting, and we don't really care much about this. And that is a simple truth. And of course, if you look at this from an engineering perspective, which is where I come from, that's really interesting but really difficult. But this is really interesting because this is what we measure and this is what we can compare to our engineering materials. So when I'm talking about natural materials, I'm talking about things that are dominated by this extracellular matrix. And that extracellular matrix is dominated by that connective tissue in animals which is the stuff that holds everything together. So if you think of the body and you think, oh, well, we're mostly made up of cells, that's true. Something like your brain is mostly neurons, but something like your bones is maybe only one or 2% cells, and the rest of the material there is this extracellular matrix. And so that's the part I'm gonna focus on, 
not on the biological cells because that's the material that we want to imitate. Now, the cells obviously are involved. We'll get to that in a moment about how the cells are involved and what we can do about that in mimicry, but I want to make sure that it's very clear that the focus here is on this ECM. Now, for a final level in my materials taxonomy, I have to look at, so what are the cells made of and what is this extracellular matrix made of? And that's where we get back to the things that were on the right-hand side of our bacterium um, diagram. So cells are made up of basically four things. Our nucleic acids, that's our DNA and RNA, lipids, proteins, sugars, okay? The extracellular <coughs> matrix outside of the cell is made up of proteins, sugars, and this new thing, biominerals. So let's talk a little bit about what these things are in a materials context for mimicking. So the first thing that's important is the nucleic acids, the DNA, the RNA. Now that is, of course, where the information is stored. And this is one of the points that I can't drive home enough, that engineers throw energy at problems, whereas Mother Nature does things very cleverly with information. You have megabytes of information stored in the DNA of every single cell in your body, and that information is what templates all of these materials. So we have our genetic code. We know that we have the genetic code is translated in groups of three bases. These bases encode for amino acids. Those amino acids are attached together, and that's what you have in terms of proteins. So you have long chain molecules that have very specific patterns of amino acids, and that is one of the fundamental materials that we're talking about here. And there's one protein that rules them all, one that is more important than any other if you are a non-biologist, and that is collagen. Collagen is everywhere of the total protein, and this picture is analogous to the one of the bacterial cell, of that total protein that's 20% of your entire self, collagen is the single most ubiquitous protein. It is 30% of all of the protein in your body. So no other protein as common as collagen, and so therefore it might have some interesting structural features when it comes to our materials. So what is collagen? Well, collagen is a, not perfectly, because this is nature, but relatively regular patterned protein in which there are three repeating units that go over and over and over again. And this is sometimes shown here, GlyXY, where X and Y are such that we usually have glycine, proline, and hydroxyproline. Now we get that little step three, 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 three over and over again, and that makes a single alpha chain. But then those alpha chains bundle together in a self-assembled process. So this happens outside the cell. So the cell makes the protein, it goes out, and then by spontaneous formation, you get this triple helix where these three alpha chains circle around each other. So remember, DNA is a double helix. Collagen, it turns out, is a triple helix. Nature loves helices. So we have our triple helix, and then those triple helices have a very elaborate self-assembly motif, whereas they form fibrils. So this is a cartoon from um, 
a local Cambridge illustration um, that we did a couple of years ago. There's some real collagen from real pictures in the background, but this is meant to show that triple helix. And you have all these individual little triple helix molecules about 300 nanometers long, and they self-assemble into fibers. And those fibers are basically the carbon fibers of the body. The collagen is a structural protein, and a lot of the collagen is in this fiber form. That's what your ligaments are, it's what your cartilage is, it's what your cornea is, it's what's in your bone. It's the structural protein that makes everything have structure. Now, I don't like only showing illustrations because it's better if we can show something real. And so here we have some collagen. So this is a thin layer of tissue. If you look on the upper left there, the sort of cobblestone appearance, those are a layer of cells sitting on the top of what is essentially a very dense layer of collagen. And what you can see in the zoomed in picture on the right is that you have these very well-defined fibers. They're about 50 nanometers in diameter. So like I said, the cells are micron scale, so they're making small things. Um, and those fibers are particularly interesting because you never see ends. In a well-prepared specimen, the collagen will just go on and on and on. And it's in part because it self-assembles. So since you have these things that are being produced by cells and then they have to form outside of the cell into these long fibers via self-assembly, they really don't like ends. And so in fact, you can shake individual fibers up really, really hard and they will form loops. That is not a motif that you will find in nature, but that is something that's really interesting and tells you something about the collagen and how much it likes itself, that it would rather form loops than ever show ends. Okay, so the last piece of the puzzle that we need here in order to make our materials are biominerals. Now, biomineralization is interesting because this is the thing that happens completely outside of the cell. There are a few cases in nature where there are bits of mineral inside cells, like magnetic little particles and bacteria and things. But for the most part, the majority of biomineral is things that form outside of the cells, but under the influence of biological processes. And so they can precipitate in a local environment because of things like local pH that the cell has been controlling so as to produce more or less mineral in a local location. So this is a seashell that has a lot of mineral in it. This seashell mineral is calcium carbonate. The most stable form of calcium carbonate is calcite. And this is a very simple um, molecule crystal structure here, you've got calcium atoms, you've got carbon atoms, and you've got oxygen atoms in a relatively regular uh, arrangement. And this is very analogous to a geological mineral. So these biominerals are formed under the influence of living things, but they end up being a lot like the rocks of rocks and minerals. So calcium carbonate forms seashells, but it's also the stuff that makes up your eggshells. So here on the left, we have a schematic of a cross-section through an eggshell, and on the very bottom, you have this membrane. Now, if you think, if you crack an egg, especially a quite fresh one, you sometimes get a pretty good crack in the shell, but you have to stick your thumbs in in order to poke through the membrane in order to actually break the egg open. Well, that's this membrane, and guess what that membrane is made of? That is collagen. So this is these collagen fibrils, exactly like the ones I was just showing you, along with some little bumps of organic material 
that are sort of mineralization controlling. So from those little bumps, you get growth of these calcite crystals to form the through thickness of the eggshell. And in something like a chicken's egg, you start with a squishy membrane with the yolk and everything inside, and you develop that just under a millimeter thick shell in only about 18 hours. And that happens at ambient pressure and just over room temperature because it's at body temperature. So compared to our concrete and steel, we have not had to put in all this energy, and yet we're making this essentially ceramic crystal um, of the calcite. So that's our eggshell formation. And this is the total composition of what you get. So if you look at eggshell, it is about 95% this calcium carbonate mineral and a small 5% of this water and organic material. Now, this organic material, guess what? Again, collagen. So not only is the collagen the thing on which the mineral starts to template, but as it grows, it incorporates more of the collagen inside the material itself. So the material is a composite, it's not just pure calcite, and that's very important to its properties and performance. So we've got our collagen membrane, we've got our collagen incorporated into the thickness, and we've got our composition here. Now I wanna contrast that with my other favorite example, which is bone. Now bone is a very different composition, but the same basic components, just in different proportions. So we have about 50% mineral, give or take, and then the rest is this hydrated protein. Now since we have a lot more protein, we have a lot more water, but the balance is kind of the same. So let's look at bone. The mineral that's contained in bone, which is also the mineral that's contained in your tooth, is calcium phosphate, or hydroxyapatite. So we had calcium carbonate for our sea creatures, for our eggshell, and we have calcium phosphate for our human creatures. And of course, this has to form a very complex three-dimensional structure. There's a schematic sort of of a plane there in 2D with the mineral forming in between these individual little collagen triple helix units. But of course, you have to then think about that in three dimensions. It has to be going on in all directions in order to make something that's solid and substantial in 3D, like a bone in your hand or a bone in your leg. So those are just two examples of natural composite materials. So composite materials, because they have this mineral component and they have this incorporated protein component, which means we have two different materials with very different properties being put together to make new materials that are nothing like we could make with any single component. Now, of course, nature figured this out millions of years ago, but engineers, being really clever, came up with this idea in the 1980s. So if you look at the composites literature, we had this great idea in the 80s that we were going to start making these fiber-reinforced materials. So we took carbon fibers, which you could say is the collagen of not nature, and fill it in with a polymer resin and do things like make airplanes that are increasingly made of composites instead of metals. And of course, why do we like to do this? 
Well, these are materials that are actually very light. That significant protein component has a very low density compared with the mineral or compared with a standard metal, and we always want to make things very light if we're putting them into airplanes. And of course, as I said, we would like our bones to be nice and light so that we don't have to spend too much energy lifting ourselves up in order to move around. So why do engineers love composite materials so much? Well, there's two main properties that I want to mention. Um, and the first is stiffness. So how much a material resists deformation or resists being stretched? And we can make a scale here. We can put numbers on it. And again, this is a log scale, so going in orders of magnitude. And we can say up at the top here, we have something extremely stiff like diamond. And down at the bottom, we have something very stretchy like rubber. So if we want to look at our components here, our mineral comes out about 100 gigapascals up there. Our proteins, way down here like rubber and bone, ends up about an order of magnitude less stiff than the mineral. And remember, it's about 50% of that mineral, so it's pretty good. It's getting a lot of its stiffness from that mineral component. On the other hand, we really don't want to break things, especially not our bones. That's painful, or our teeth. Um, so. Here we have a similar sort of log scale of, stiff, of toughness, where we have things that are very tough up at the top and things that are very brittle, like glass at the bottom. So things that if you drop them, they will immediately break. Now, again, we can put our bone components on the scale. And now when we do that, our mineral is very much like a ceramic and so comes out very low on this scale. Our protein, which is like rubber, is very stretchy and therefore very, very tough to break. And our bone comes in up near the top, near protein. So this is why we love composite materials. We have two main components in our material, one that primarily gives us stiffness and one that primarily gives us toughness. And so we can now optimize for two totally different aspects of the material's behavior just by having two components in the system, each of which is essentially responsible for a different bit of the behavior. And in natural materials, it's this toughness that is the most important. And the fact that all natural materials are composites is really interesting. And of course, there's a real trade-off here because the chicken needs to get out or it's never going to be born. Um, so it has to be able to poke through <coughs> that and so in fact what the chicken does or what the um, other bird inside the egg does is it steals calcium from the inside of the shell and makes it into its own bones and so it actually weakens the material as time is going on so that it will be able to break through because the material as formed is so tough that the chicken or other small bird would have a difficult time getting out so we make very tough materials in nature. All right, so my final main thread here is if I've convinced you that natural materials are pretty awesome and that they can be made under ambient conditions and therefore don't have a significant energy requirement, then can we make things like them in some way um, in order to have our dream vision of building things out of a different class of materials? So, Back to our basic composite here. So we have our mineral component and we have our protein component. And we know that that protein component is this triple helix of collagen. Now, 
The first obvious thing that an engineer would certainly do would be just to mix those two things together. Now, of course, that's not how nature does it. So if we want to do things like how nature does, maybe we need to be a little bit more clever than that. So we have a couple of other options. We can take the collagen in its whole fibril form and we can add components of the mineral, which is basically kind of how nature does it because you have a lot of these mineral ions and things floating around in your blood. And so they can come out of the blood and deposit and form the mineral through a chemical reaction. Or we can take even one step further back and take our collagen triple helix and take it apart into the individual molecules. Now, we do that by essentially denaturing the protein. Um, and the denatured form of collagen is gelatin, which is something you would probably be very familiar with, especially if you're a vegetarian and they don't give you nice desserts at restaurants or at college dinners because it's come from some animal source. So gelatin is the same protein as collagen, just in a different form. And as you can imagine, the fact that we use it as food stuff means that it's cheap. So it's very inexpensive. We can buy it in kilogram containers, which means if we want to scale up our making materials based on natural things, then we can afford to do that. So we purchase our gelatin, which, as I said, is denatured collagen. We purchase chemicals that have the ions in them that form the minerals that we want to make. And then we want to put these things together in order to form our composite material. So how do we do this? Well, we, we've looked into a number of different processes. And there's a number of ways of doing this to try and mimic the natural way of doing it. And the one we settled on is called the alternate soaking process. Now, this is just a very simple thing where you have four different beakers of solution. And I'll come back in a second to what those solutions are and you just dip whatever you want to form the material on into those beakers in a cycle. So two different solutions, two different water rinses. This is all consistent with the fact that we make things in our body which is in a 70% water environment. So doing a solution processing makes a great deal of sense. Now this is where the engineering comes in because we do this with Lego robots because this is really boring. Graduate students do not like boring, repetitive processes. If you haven't happened to recognize me or these Lego robots before, if you Google Cambridge Bone Robot or Cambridge Bone Lego, you will find a very nice, high-quality, uh, two-minute long video showing these robots in action that we made for the, Cambridge Sci or for the uh, Google Science Fair a couple of years ago. And hopefully, that's supposed to be inspiring to kids to do science projects. Um, but it's also very inspiring to graduate students who like the idea of their research largely composing, playing with, building, and programming LEGO robots. And in fact, the LEGO robots are something of a thing in the Cambridge Engineering Department. We have a whole set of, of LEGO robot projects during the first week of the first year of the engineering course. And in fact, we've been developing these funny relationships with LEGO, which means that I've actually met the grandson of the founder of LEGO through all of this crazy stuff. So it's a great deal of fun, but it is actually 
legitimate science. And before we got famous on the internet with this, we did publish the paper in which we used the process to make these bone-like materials that I'm telling you about. So, as I said, we want to make bone, so we need our protein, which as I said, we're using gelatin that we buy. It comes from things like uh, pig skin or cow's hooves. They process it and sell it as a chemical. We haven't figured out a way to improve on nature yet. We're still using the natural proteins. That's a very important point. So we put our gelatin into our two beakers along with some sodium phosphate and calcium chloride. So of course we want to form calcium phosphate, which is bone mineral, and the happy side product here is sodium chloride, which is of course table salt. So this is perfectly consistent with our biomimetic approach. We're making things in a solution environment with salt, which of course we have about just under 1% of in our blood. So we do this, and lo and behold, we can make a very bone-like material. Now this is laboratory scale. We are making small samples because we want to test the composition, we want to test the properties, um, but we do actually get something that has a pretty substantial, um, really good mechanical properties. Um, it forms, as I said, in the solution process. We then dry it out in order to test its stiffness and its toughness, and it's quite comparable to real bone. So the challenge here becomes one of scale-up, because we've shown proof of concept that this can be done, um, and so if you wanted to build buildings out of this, you would need really big Lego robots, right? <laughs> Get Lego working on that. So we can do the same thing with our eggshell system. So remember there we were talking about calcium carbonate instead of calcium phosphate. So we just swap out our sodium phosphate for sodium carbonate. And of course, because of the composition differences between the eggshell and the bone, remember we need a lot more mineral and a lot less protein. So we just alter the amount of ratio of the things that we put into the beakers. And the materials we make actually reflect whatever we put in the beaker. So if we put in a ratio that gives us 50-50 to make a bone-like material, and then we cut back the amount of gelatin by an order of magnitude, then we get closer to this 95-5 that we need for the eggshell. Interestingly enough, though, when we do this on a piece of glass, which worked perfectly well for the bone, we don't get much of anything. But if we take a piece of that eggshell membrane, remember that also was collagen, then we get beautiful calcite crystal formation. So we haven't fooled Mother Nature entirely. We need for the calcite system to deposit things directly onto our eggshell membrane or our collagen fibrils. So we can take our biomimetics one step further and try and make an artificial eggshell membrane. So now we've got our gelatin, so more of this denatured collagen. We put it into a syringe. We put it on a very, very slow uh, syringe pump setting. And we put it across a wickedly large voltage of about 15 kilovolts. And if we do that, we make this material that doesn't look like much from a macroscopic view, but when you zoom in, it does in fact have nanoscale fibers of our 
protein that is the same protein as in our eggshell membrane. So this is where we get to the point where I mentioned that we're still working on this. Um, you can see that we've got the scale about right for making something that looks like the protein, but we need to come up with a strategy to make these bumps because, of course, remember that those bumps were where the nucleation was actually happening, where the calcite crystals were starting to grow in our eggshell system in order to get our full thickness in only 18 hours. Now, of course, we can go and isolate the proteins from eggshells, and we can use some microprinting to try and print bumps of these proteins on our electrospun biomimetic eggshell membrane-like scaffold, and that's actually the current state of where we are with this research. So having shown that we can make these materials, we're still working on the process of how to do it for the case of these eggshells. So in summary, I'm trying to argue that we should be thinking about rethinking the way that we build stuff. So instead of having our concrete and steel jungle, maybe we should make things from a different class of materials. And of course, that would give us a really substantial energy savings and significant dent in our total carbon footprint. And of course, it's not the only solution. There are many fine colleagues of mine in the engineering department who are working on greener concretes and who are working on developing kilns that are more efficient for the processing of steel. And those are things that we should be continuing to do. But my argument is that if we want to make a really big dent in this carbon footprint, we actually have to go in with a bigger change in our thinking. So, of course, there are many model materials in nature. I've been telling you about the two that we've been playing with. Um, bone was something I got interested in from a historical perspective because I used to do a lot of work with orthopedic surgeons. Eggshell is something I've become interested in since I've been here in Cambridge because I happen to know a lot of zoologists here. Um, but there are other natural systems that we should be exploring if we want to think about different natural materials. So seashell is another one. There are a lot of engineers in the world looking at seashell right now. There are a lot of corals and sea creatures and diatoms, things like that. And of course, there's also our own teeth, which are a hydroxyapatite composite, but in that sort of 95% mineral like the, um, the shell was. And of course, you know your teeth are pretty darn tough as well because they don't break so easily considered they're 95% ceramic. And hopefully I've convinced you that if we're going to address big problems, especially big problems to do with the environment, maybe we need to have wild ideas. The student who came to me sheepishly saying, I think we need to buy some Lego robots for the lab, probably was not expecting me to embrace this the way that I did. Um, but I think that's the way we have to think of things as engineers. Engineers are problem solvers, and problem solving sometimes means doing things that are very weird and that make your colleagues look at you very funny in order to try and really make these big changes in what we're doing and how we're thinking of things. So with that, I will stop and be happy to take any questions. <laughs>